0: Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, hey, you Galt people, settle down. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll go sit down. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. (laughs) Carry on. We'll we'll come back next week. I am so glad to be up here. exciting stuff that i'm so glad that pastor mike gets to go on a vacation he he works so hard to share the word week after week i hope you've been looking at the daily devotions that he does in the morning you don't have to be there right at nine o'clock you can find it later on it's been such a blessing to me uh but they will be back and but keep them in prayer so this evening we are continuing in a sense through the book of revelation that fantastical book and remember that is where we get our English from the Greek, the word revelation means apocalypse and immediately comes to mind, devastation of and wars and, and trials and tribulations. But you know, like, like we learn, it's not like what the common lore thinks of it is. Revelation in Greek is simply means revelation. I mean, revealing the unveiling of something and God, as we go into continue on to chapter four, as we've gone through the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, it's the unveiling of God's promises. It's the unveiling of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul, God is just pulling back that curtain. So we, we're not surprised when these things come up, that we're not unaware of God's uh, mercy and grace as we see things happening in the world. And what is happening? And God says, I'm right there in the middle of it. Amen? Well, if you remember from previous lessons in this book, God actually gives us the outline. When we read in chapter 1 at verse 19, the Lord said to John, write therefore what you have seen, what's in the past, what is now, and what will take place later. So the last couple of weeks, Pastor Mike has been going through the what is now portion of this outline that God gave us, where Jesus has dictated to John a letter to all these seven churches. Do you guys been, no one's been sleeping through that, I bet, exciting stuff. And we learned that these seven churches, Mike has taught, represent seven eras, E-R-A-S, of the church history. And beginning with Ephesus, which we learned was the type of the first church, maybe up to the first 300 years. And then he finished last week speaking about uh, Laodicea, which he said was a representation, which we believe the representation of today's church. And, and as we look at uh, the church of Laodicea and we try to look at it the way the church is today, we understand and we see how that church of Laodicea kind of had gone off the rails. They were a lukewarm church, and, and, and Jesus was really kind of getting in their case about that. And we can kind of see that in today's world, too, can't we? But now as we come to chapter 4 and we get to verse 1, I just want to give you two words after this so now the book of revelation following its own outline is switching gears and we're reading about after the seven churches as we move on to chapter four and chapter up to chapter 22 god is pulling back the curtain so that we can see what is going to be and as mike had mentioned last week It was so very interesting about these chapters that we're getting into in the book of Revelation. For some reason, somehow, the church, you and I, the born-again believers of Jesus Christ, seem to be gone. The first uh, three chapters, the church is mentioned 19 times, and all of a sudden, poof, where'd they go? Well, let's find out. Somewhere between the beginning of chapter 4 after this, and the rest of the book of Revelation, we need to find out where the church went. Well, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, at some point in time, after the church age, Jesus has promised to take the believers home to be with Him in heaven. Do you believe that? Now... What we're going to talk about today is is a terminology. It's a common term that you hear about occasionally. It's called the rapture. Anyone not hear that term rapture ever? When I grew up in the Catholic Church, we never heard about that, and a lot of churches today aren't even talking about it. It's a term used to describe the catching away of of believers in Christ to be with him forever. that word rapture, there are still some liberal theologians that will dispute this doctrine of faith. And you know what they say typically, they say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. And they get all theological on you, and they get all scholarship-like on you. And, and then you want to say, well, neither is the word Trinity. But we believe in the concept of the Trinity because it's taught from Genesis, all the revelation that we have three distinct persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all representing the powers and, and the life and the and the person of God yet three distinct yet all uh, are are described as God it's a mystery we don't fully understand it we will when we stand before him but when you get to, we talk about the word rapture it's actually a derivative of one of the early Bible translations around the year 345 or so this guy a monk named Jerome he came to the Lord he got all excited and he decided to I'm gonna translate the Greek scripture into Latin. And in Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, our English translations translate this word as caught up. Well, the Latin Vulgate used the Latin word rapio for caught up, and that's where we got the word rapture. So no, it's not in the Bible, but guess what? We're gonna find out that it is everywhere in the, throughout scripture. So at some point, as we're gonna to study tonight, in the future, those who are alive or our mortal bodies are going to be transformed into uncorruptible, immortal bodies. And immediately before this happens, those who have died in Christ before us, they're going to be raised from the dead, and they're going to receive a new body, and we're all going to meet up in the air. And all this is going to happen as we see Scripture describe in a nanosecond. How quick is a nanosecond? In the blink of an eye, you can't even move that fast. Well, one quick note before we get more into this <clears throat> often there's confusion between what we call the rapture and also what is taught in scripture the second coming of christ so sometimes we think that's the same thing but actually it's two different events that are taught in scripture the rapture is a distinct separate event from the second of the coming of christ according to scripture the rapture will precede the second coming of christ the second coming is the return of christ from heaven And it's a time when Jesus will come to establish his kingdom here on earth. And again, it happens after the rapture. We don't know. Mike is going to be getting to that. But my understanding is when Jesus comes back to earth, the second coming of Christ, it will mark the beginning of his 1,000-year reign here on earth. Anyone here ever read the books by Tim LaHaye or saw the movie Left Behind? Pretty fun books, aren't they? On a seemingly normal day, people are working, they're raising their families, they're, uh, someone's in a car with his buddy, and all of a sudden, poof, his buddy's gone. There'll be two people uh, working in a shop, in a carpenter shop, and all of a sudden, poof, three people are gone. There'll be a plane full of people, and all of a sudden, the 30 people, poof, what's gone? Even the pilot, oops and that is a is a fantastical movie but it's actually biblical and that's what god says is going to happen we get this idea we get actually get a big hint of where the rapture comes from jesus himself turn your bibles if you would to the gospel of john chapter 14 and these are the words of jesus christ and again when you get to around 13 and 14 all the way to 17 jesus is speaking to the disciples just before he dies and these are very important words, very critical final instructions. So in John chapter 14, Jesus with his heart just so heavy, with the, with the cross right before him, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Wow. You know, we read that all the time. We look at it. just groovy. I'm going to get a new house. But just think what Jesus is saying. A couple of things. Number one, he's telling you, when you see things going really weird in the world, when you think things, are, things are, seem to be upside down, when things, when they're calling good is bad and bad good, and you don't understand what's going on, he's telling you, I do not want you to be afraid. You need to understand that I am still in control. I am still sovereign over this universe. I am the one that's holding the atoms and molecules together. Do not be afraid. And then he says, when he goes away after his death. After his resurrection, the ascension that we read about in the book of Acts, when all that happens, he's going to be busy. He's not up up there going up in a cloud. What is Jesus going to be doing? He's going to be getting things ready to bring you and I home to be with him forever. Preparing our lodging. I'm hoping for a three-story with an elevator. But most importantly, though, for our lesson tonight, look at... Verse 3, he says, I will come back and take you to be with me. You also may be where I am so that you will also be where I am. Isn't that good news? And that, my friends, is description of the rapture. But that's not all we have to go on. The gospel of Matthew, again, Jesus looking with the cross before him. And he's preparing his disciples, and he, and he gathers them together, and he's telling them parables. When we get to Matthew 24 and 25, he tells these very interesting parables, sometimes confusing to the modern man, but it, it really relates to his second coming. It really relates to his rapture. In Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and this is kind of long, so stay with me on this. Jesus is going to tell a little parable. And remember, parables are just stories. You don't necessarily put whole doctrine on this. He is putting together a picture story for us to give us a greater understanding of a doctrinal lesson. So all this is just a parable, a story, parable meaning going alongside, okay? So there's some stuff in here we may not understand in today's world. He says, at that time, and we're going to ask and look at what he's talking about. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, Sir, sir, they said, Open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus said, Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So this may not look like any wedding ceremony you've attended. Eric just got back from a wedding ceremony. Eric, was that like the wedding you went to? No, okay, just checking. But we as students of the Bible, one thing we do learn throughout scripture and particularly in the New Testament that in Revelation, Ephesians, and several other places, the Bible likens us, gives us a picture story of the relationship of the church with our Savior Jesus Christ and often you'll see uh, liking us as a bride at a wedding the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus of course is the groom and and, and we see in Ephesians a revelation of this great wedding feast that's going to take place in in, in in the future so in first century Jewish wedding is so much different from what Eric saw this weekend past weekend what we've seen is very very different first <clears throat> In the ancient world, most weddings, almost all weddings, were prearranged. It, sometimes even when they were children, the fathers of the bride, the father of the groom got together and said, you're going to marry that, you're going to marry that, and all that, and it was all arranged way ahead of the time. And I think maybe 2 Thessalonians 2.13 kind of gives us a picture of this, how this is a shadow of the relationship our, of our relationship with Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So I kind of see in there a parallel picture of how God has chosen us, how he looked into eternity past and saw each and every person that was going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, that in that eternal past, that he saw the church and the makeup of the church, and he preordained, and he has prearranged this marriage ceremony, if you will, between the church and his son. The father of the groom in an ancient Jewish wedding, he would pay a price. The father of the groom would literally pay a price to the bride. He would have to come up with a dowry, so to speak, in the ancient Jewish wedding. And I believe this is a picture of the price that the father had to pay for the church. And what was that price? His son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The biggest price, the greatest price of all. Well, next after the arrangement in a Jewish wedding in the first century, there was what we called the espousal, or what we, what we might call an engagement period. And for the Jews at that time, typically it was a one-year period. It was a very formal thing. It was considered as binding as marriage as itself. So if there was some misgiving or if there was adultery or you needed to dismiss that engagement, you literally had to create it just like a divorce. But during this espousal period, the son, the groom would go back to his father's house and he would prepare, he would do an addition to the room, to the house that his father lived. And that's where he and his new family was gonna live his new bride doesn't that not sound like Jesus said in John chapter 14 I go away to build you a house but then on the night of the wedding and this is where this parable really comes to mind what we're talking about the rapture that evening those virgins mentioned in the parable they had to be ready now as opposed to our wedding ceremonies nowadays If I was to go to a wedding, typically I'd get an invitation in the mail and say, well, show up at this such-and-such place, this church on Saturday at noon, and you're going to see the marriage of such-and-such-and-so-and-so people. But this is a real true fact of ancient Jewish weddings. They didn't know the hour of the day. There's only one person in the whole family that knew the day and the hour of the bride, and that was the father of the groom. And we see that pointed out in Matthew 24, 6, 36. He says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So in this parable, we're given a picture of this wedding party, these ten virgins, and the wedding has been arranged again for us a picture again of Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. In her story, Jesus is talking about how these ladies had to be ready at any moment. They had to be prepared. for they, She did not know when the groom was going to come and take them home. And usually, this would happen at night. And these virgins, these, this wedding party, had to have their lamps ready. They had to be ready at any moment. And these ten virgins had to get oil. They had to be prepared. But in this parable, we see a, a, this picture of a rapture. But the overarching point of Jesus' parable is in verses 2 through 5. He said, Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So Jesus, in John chapter 14, we had read that he is promising us in this rapture that he's going to come and take us home. Amen? But as Jesus relates this parable to the marriage of, these, of this ancient Jewish wedding, he's also relating it to us and warning the church to be ready, to be living a life like the The five who were ready, who had their lamps, who had their oil, they were ready for that ceremony any second when you least expect it. Yet some of these, remember, they were caught sleeping, living their life like the wedding. Well, it might come today, it might come tomorrow, and we don't know when it's going to come. And they were living a life totally indifferent to whether it mattered to them, even if this wedding would happen. And I think sometimes when I look around, that's all too common what I see in some of the, the churches we see today. We see people sometimes that they get their fire insurance at, at a harvest crusade or an altar call, and yet afterwards they just go about their life like nothing changed without a daily commitment to, to looking to God, for following God, and asking God to fill them with the Spirit and to, to get into their word. One of the great hallmarks, of and this tells you how old I am, of the of the Jesus movement in the 1960s and the Calvary Chapel movement, which started about the same time, was the fact that they used this word of greeting all the time. They said, Maranatha, which is Greek, Greek for what? Come, Jesus, come. You see it in a lot of their songs. matter of fact, one of the great uh, record distributors was Maranatha Music at the time. And it was always just a big thing. We were expecting Jesus to come every time. We were expecting any second we talked about it. But we see so many people today, in spite of the prophetic signs that we see opening in our eyes daily, opening up the news, that I believe that we're witnessing the portending the imminent, imminent return of our Lord and Savior. There's so many people that are just like those sleepy brides. Peter describes this attitude in his second letter in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. He said, first of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come. Any scoffers in here? No? Okay, good. There will be scoffers will come. There will be scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Then jumping down to verse eight, he says, "'But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. "'With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, "'and a thousand years are like a day. "'The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, "'as some understand slowness. "'He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, "'but everyone to come to repentance.'" Let me say that again. The Lord is not slow in his keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know what? I am very selfish. I hope the Lord comes tonight. Anyone else? But you know what? I'm so glad he didn't come in 1971. You know why? I didn't come to faith till 1972. You weren't born yet. you were just a gleam in daddy's eye. I'm so glad that God is patient and wanting all to come to repentance. If if he had come in 1971, I would have been in that left behind group in that bus. Going, oh, what happened? I, I guess I should have listened to my friend and opened up the Bible. So I believe in this parable, Jesus is talking about being ready in these lazy virgins who did not prepare for is a picture sometimes of the church today but it's also a picture of how God calls us to be prepared for that be, to be like Peter wanting all like Peter says wanting God who said he wanted none to perish that we're about the father's business that we're looking to share this gospel with our friends and family and, and people we run into not wanting any to perish not to be selfish like me and say Lord Jesus come now but, Lord Jesus, please wait until my friend such-and-such such has come to faith in Christ. Lord, let me about, be about sharing the gospel till you come back. But back in our parable, verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So what would occur in the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony is an actual fact of how, it, the, the, how the father of the groom, he would be the one to make the decision of the exact time of the wedding ceremony. The father would shout out, now's the time. He'd grab his son by his neck and say, go get your bride. And oftentimes there would be a trumpet that would shout out to tell the bride, hey, I'm coming. And Shazam, he'd go grab his bride. They would take her home to his new home. The the marriage would be consummated and the bride would stay in the room for seven days while outside there would be this great feast going on. I was reading about that, and I I thought, well, maybe that seven days where the bride is kept away in that room is a little picture of the seven years of tribulation that we might be saved from. Amen? Paul and Mike will be getting at the future lessons. Maybe maybe that's a picture in a shadow of the fact that the bride is going to be protected from the seven-year tribulation that we'll talk about in a second. So the rapture, Jesus presents the hope of us coming to him and uh, and to his disciples in chapter 14. And again, in Matthew 24 and 25, he's preparing disciples for his departure, using that picture, that parable, a thing that was very familiar to the Jewish mindset of this Jewish wedding ceremony and the events that would lead up to John chapter 14. But there's, there's a lot more in the Bible about this. When Paul, the apostle was in the city of Corinth, he had to write a letter to a, a church that he founded a couple of years before in the city of Thessalonica, in, in, which is in Greece. And it was a, it's a place that he could only spend three weeks at because he kind of stirred up trouble. And even after a couple of weeks there, there were riots in the city. People did not want to hear the gospel. The, the Jews in the city raised up a big mob and in the middle of the night. Paul and Silas had to escape. So this young church was left without a leader, without a mature Christian to guide them. We read finally, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, that Paul finally was able to send Timothy there to guide them, monitor them. But with that, Paul felt the need, he needed to encourage these guys. He had heard word that they're getting dismayed, that there was persecution, and some of them were starting to Some were starting to wonder, hey, what happened to my brother who died what happened to my best friend over there? He died. Are they, they going to miss the rapture that we're expecting every day? So Paul says, hey, hang in there, guys. I got something to tell you. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we read from verse 13. Because Paul's going to tell them that soon and very soon, again, that's that Maranatha thing that we're supposed to have in our hearts, that Jesus is going to be taking us home. Paul writes to the Thessalonican church, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, John 14, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still alive, Left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So what, what, did, what did Paul just describe to Thessalonians? Didn't that kind of sound like that wedding feast we talked about, about the ten virgins and the wedding? And wasn't it a bigger picture of what Jesus told us in, in John 14 about going home to prepare a place for us? Thessalonians was just telling us about the rapture, the rapio. And it was very much like that Jewish wedding. But Paul says in verse 13, he says, I don't want you guys to be ignorant about this. The church needs to understand this. Number one, if you're a new Christian like the Thessalonican church, this is something that you need to hold in your heart as, as, as you're going to find difficult times ahead. And what we're seeing so much now, I think, and what, kind of disturbing that there's too many churches and there are too many pastors and, and too many denominations that have put this teaching of the rapture to the side they take this, this parable that we told us that, you know that, that Paul told us this could happen any second he said in verse chapter 5 of that same book he said now brothers about the times and dates we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night Anyone ever been ripped off? Have someone break into your house or something? You didn't know it was happening, did you? And that's what it's describing right here. It's going to happen when the least time you expect it. People will be eating and drinking. People will be working. It will be just like life is going on. Poof! But this should be, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, encourage one another with this. This should be something that, that, that should encourage us. God wants us to know that those who precede us in death. How many of you have lost someone you love that you knew who knew the Lord? There's no such thing what some people believe and, and teach in some churches called soul sleep. That is not in the Bible. There's some think that when people die, they just lay in the grave until Jesus is going to come and get them. There's some churches that literally teach that the Bible, the heaven knows nothing of that doctrine. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 reminds us, we are confident, yes, well pleased, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? And of course, those very familiar verses, when Jesus was on that cross, and next to him was that thief who came to faith, and he said, I I tell you, on this day, truly, you will be with me in paradise. The very second your heart stops beating, you're not going to go into that grave Your body will, but your spirit is going to come up with me into heaven. You're not going to have to wait while your body is waiting in there, and you're going to be, your spirit be somehow encapsulated in that rotting body. He says, you're going to be with me today in paradise and see God face to face. So Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians that, hey, your brothers and sisters in Christ have proceeded with you. They are in heaven. They're gonna, and when he comes back, their, their spirits are going to be caught up in the sky. They're going to be given new bodies. Again, look at verse 16 from Thessalonians. It says, the Lord himself will give the shout, and the bridegroom is coming. He's saying, I'm on my way. And he also says he's going to have an archangel shouting too. It's going to be loud. We're going to hear it. And what's even better than that, even better than Mike Buterer's saxophone, we're going to hear a trumpet screaming out through the air. The groom, Jesus Christ, is coming to take us home. Paul would later write in his letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, beginning at verse 51, he says, Listen. It means you guys need to hear this. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the imperishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written, will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen? The words to the Thessalonian church as well as the Corinthian church had to be a, a great... S- bit of comfort to them as we look at the news throughout the world there are brothers and sisters in christ that are suffering this very hour people are dying for their faith in parts of the world right now and i'm sure as they read this how this must hold up their hope that they have in christ to understand and know that jesus has not left us as orphans that he's going to take them home no matter what they're going through and these words to give us hope these words should inspire us as christians to be serving the Lord daily, to be expecting to look up and know that our redemption is near as we see the things happening in the world, the things that are happening in the Middle East right now. But for some, when you talk about the Lord coming back, for some, when you talk about the rapture, it kind of gives a, oh, that kind of makes me nervous. I'm uncomfortable with that. Maybe the thought of the rapture puts fear in some people's hearts. Perhaps for those people that are living like they have one foot in, in the church and one foot in the world, that split personality, living for God, perhaps a couple hours on Sunday or Wednesday night even, and then the rest of the, the week you're living like hell, or perhaps you're like that church of Ephesus that we read about that had forgotten its first love. Or that church at Laodicea where Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I'm really going to show my age now. I'm going to give you the words of a song that I grew up in from uh, Motown, Curtis Mayfield. You ever hear People Get Ready, There's a Train A-Coming? should have had uh, Kim up here singing because I'm not going to do it. It goes like this, people get ready, there's a train a-coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. So people get ready for the train to Jordan, picking up passengers coast to coast. Faith is the key, open the doors and boredom. There is hope for all among those loved the most. And that's the story of what Paul was telling. And that's what he said at Thessalonians. That's what Jesus was telling about the bridegroom. People get ready. There's a train coming. Now, as we kind of close this up, and I got to honor Mike's commitment to be done by 8 o'clock. Dee's going to turn out the lights if I don't. But I just want to add that Pastor Mike and I and so many, many other uh people who read the bible and study this we believe that the rapture takes place after the seven-year tribulation and that's a great comfort to me too because i'm a sissy when it comes to pain <laughs> and one a couple of reasons why one main reason we read again the first thessalonians 5 9 it says for god did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to read salvation receive salvation through our lord jesus christ so what is the tribulation and when we come to the tribulation, read about in the book of Revelation, you can read about in Daniel. What we read in those chapters that are coming up, it is the wrath of God against the rebellion of mankind. It is the wrath of God against the sin. It's the punishment upon those who rejected his son who died for them on the cross. And what do we know One of the most important doctrines of the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, when he was on his cross, he said, It is finished, that our sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to that cross alongside with him, paid in full. And that's why Paul could write in Romans 8:1, For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I. It doesn't make sense to me that we would go through the wrath or the punishment. But we should know that there are good, honest brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who we can continue to have fellowship with who believe, and they use scripture, and I've read some of them. They use the Bible to support their beliefs. Some that believe in the mid-trib rapture of the church, in the three and a half years, boom, then it's going to happen. And there are others, and they cite Bible passages why they believe it, that they believe that the church will be raptured after the tribulation. I don't like that one. I think they're wrong. How about, agreed? Good. Let's send our uh, advice to God and tell them, let's do it beforehand. Well I want to finish with this. <clears throat> leave you the final words from Philippians 3:20:21. Paul wrote, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And that, brothers and sisters, is our living hope. Amen. We're actually going to be talking about this a little bit more tomorrow in the thursday night bible studies we're finishing up chapter 15 of 1 corinthians so we'll be digging in a little bit deeper to what paul wrote to the corinthian church but have the r- great rest of the week and we hope to see you sunday and god bless you if you like prayer phil and i will be up here but amen Maran-